Bezrat Hashem, we continue our study of the Gemara of Shabbos. We are on page 35a, a few lines from the top of the page. We're going to continue with the discussion of moving different things on Shabbos. So the Gemara says, regarding the legal status of a wicker vessel, they have an opposite dispute as to what we just discussed on the, the end of the last daf. So in that case, the size of the vessel that Rav Yosef allowed is larger than the size of the vessel permitted by Rabbah. So as Rabbah says, regards to a wicker vessel with a, that has the capacity of two core, and core is a unit of Talmudic measurement. So Rabbah says that a person is permitted to move this on Shabbos. But regarding a wicker vessel that has the capacity of three core, you cannot move this on Shabbos. Why? This is much larger than the dimensions of a vessel, and therefore you're only permitted to move vessels on Shabbos. It's no longer considered a vessel when it's three core. Rav Yosef said, a vessel that has the capacity of three core, one is also permitted to move it. And only with a capacity of four core are you not allowed to move it. Amar Abaye, Abaye says, he ra- I raised the dilemma before my master, before Rabbah. Abaye was the student of Rabbah. And he raised this dilemma when it was practical, meaning when he actually needed to know the answer about what to do, he raises it. And Abaye says, teaches us that Rabbah did not permit him to move even a vessel with the capacity of Tukor. So the Gemara asks, so in, in accordance with whose opinion did Rabbah make this ruling? So it's in accordance with the opinion of the Tana that we learned in the Mishnah, which discusses the laws of, of ritual purity. And it says that a round straw barrel and a round barrel that's made of reeds and the cistern of an Alexandrian ship an Alexandrian ship, which is a large vessel that was placed on a boat and filled with water so that people, people could drink water, was drinking water. Although these vessels have bottoms, meaning they are considered to be receptacles, because they have a capacity of 40 se'a of liquid, and a se'a is another unit of measurement, and the, a 40 se'a is the equivalent of two core of dry goods, so they are ritually pure. Even if they came into contact with some kind of source of, of tuma, of ritual impurity, they don't become impure themselves. After a certain size, these containers aren't considered to be vessels anymore, and therefore they can't become ritually impure. So Rabba's ruling here to, to Abaye was that because regarding the halachas of ritual impurity, a vessel of two core is not considered a vessel anymore, so you can't move it on Shabbos. So with regard to this, Abaye said, we should learn from it that the surplus of dry goods in a vessel relative to liquids is one-third of the contents of the vessel. It says in the Mishnah that a vessel that can hold, can hold 40 seah of liquid holds the equivalent of two core of dry produce, which is the equivalent of 60 seah. So the Gemara says, Abaye saw that Rava was gazing westward on Shabbos. Why was he ga- gazing westward? He was gazing... Uh, westward, on Erev Shabbos, I should say. On Erev Shabbos, he was gazing westward in order to determine whether or not the sky was red or, or whether it wasn't, to determine this idea of Bein HaShemashos, of twilight. Abayi says to Rava, wasn't it taught in a that twilight is from the time when the sun sets 
as long as the eastern face of the sky is red because of the light of the sun. So why are you looking west? Rava says to him, do you hold that the reference is actually to the eastern face of the sky? Rava says, no. It's really referring to the face of the sky that causes the eastern side to become red, which means the west. It's a different way of interpreting that, that idea of western face. Well, some tell a different version of this incident. They say that Rava saw that Abaye was gazing eastward. And Rava says to him, do you hold that the reference is to the actual eastern face of the sky? The reference is to the face of the sky that causes the east to become red, which is really the west. And you, there is a mnemonic for this, and that mnemonic is window. And the reason that the mnemonic is window is because it's on the wall opposite the window that you can see how much of the sunlight is shining through it. So, you know, when the sun shines through the window, it projects onto the other side of the wall. You can see exactly how much light is there. So now with regard to what was taught in the Brisa that Rabbi Nehemiah says, that the duration of twilight is the time that it takes for a person to walk half a mil after the sun sets. So about this, Rabbi Hanina says, one who wants to know the precise measure of Rabbi Nehemiah's twilight should do the following thing. Leave the sun at the top of Mount Carmel. So because when you're standing on the, on the seashore, you can still see the top of Mount Carmel in the sunlight. And then you should descend and immerse yourself in the sea and you should come back out. And that's Rabbi Nehemiah's measure of the duration of twilight. So because of that similarity to Rabbi Hanina's statement, the Gemara is going to say uh, a, a, a point that Rabbi Chia brought up. Rabbi Chia said, one who wants to see Miriam's well, and Miriam, if you remember, the sister of Moshe and Aaron, and she, this well accompanied the Jewish people throughout their time in the desert. If you want to see this well, you should do the following thing. You should climb up to the time of to top of Har Carmel, the Mount Carmel, and look out. And you're going to see a rock that looks like a sieve in the sea. And that's Miriam's well. Rav said, a spring that is portable, meaning that it can move from place to place, is, is tahor, is ritually pure, and it's regarded like it's an actual spring and not like it's drawn water. And what is an example of a spring that is movable? That's what Miriam's well was. I'm a Rav Yehuda, I'm a Shmuel. Rav Yehuda said that Shmuel said. During Rabbi Yehuda's twilight, Kohanim, who were Tame, ritually impure, who wanted to immerse themselves during the day to become Tahor, pure, in order so that the sunset will follow their immersion and therefore they're going to be permitted to eat the truma, they can still immerse themselves during that period of time. So according to this opinion, twilight is still considered to be part of the daytime. Gemara asked, asks, so in accordance with whose opinion is this the case? If you say that it is in accordance with Rabbi Yehuda's opinion, his opinion cited above is that twilight is a period of suffolk, it's a period of doubt. It's uncertain whether it's day or night. So therefore, a person who immerses at that particular time can't eat true until after the sunset of the following day. Rather, however, the reference here is to the twilight of Rabbi Yehuda in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yossi. And, and in that situation, Kohanim can still immerse as Rabbi Yossi considers that time period to still be day. And that sunset's going to happen afterward. So the Gemara asks a question. Peshitta, it's obvious, according to Rabbi Yossi, that they are immersing themselves during the day. That's his opinion. The Gemara says, this is so, lest you say that the twilight of Rabbi Yossi is included and subsumed within and takes place at the end of the twilight of Rabbi Yehuda. So when the twilight of Rabbi Yehuda ends, Rabbi Yossi's twilight is also over. It's already nighttime. 
sunset of that day is already passed by, and there's no sunset that's going to allow them to eat the truma. So therefore, he teaches that the Rebbe Yehuda's twilight ends, and only after that does Rebbe Yossi's twilight begin. Amar Rabba Babarchana, Amar Rebbe Yochanan. Rabba Babarchana said that Rebbe Yochanan said. The halacha, the law, is in accordance with the opinion of Rebbe Yehuda with regard to the matter of Shabbos, and the halacha is in accordance with the opinion of Rebbe Yossi regarding the matter of Truma. So the Gemara says, Bishlama, granted, concerning the statement that the halacha is in accordance with the, Rebbe, with the opinion of Rebbe Yehuda regarding the matter of Shabbos, as like all other cases of doubt, this ruling is a chumrit, is, is strict with regard to Torah prohibitions. However, with regard to Truma, so what's, what are we talking about here? If you say that it's referring to the matter of immersion so that the person can, the Kohen can eat the Truma, immersion is also a case of suffix, of uncertainty regarding Torah law. So why would the ruling, the ruling be more lenient in that case than it is in the case of Shabbos? As we flip over to Daf Lamed, Hey Amid Beis, 35b, the top. Ella, rather, it must be that the reference here is regarding eating Truma. So Kahanim cannot eat the Truma until the twilight is finished which, according to Rabbi Yossi's opinion, is a little bit later than it is according to Rabbi Yehuda's. Amar Rabbi Yehuda, Amar Shmuel, regarding this period of twilight, Rabbi Yehuda said that Shmuel said, when a person can see one star in the evening sky, it's still daytime. Two stars, it's twilight, and three stars, it's nighttime. And they also taught that rule in a brisa. When a person can see one star in the evening, it's still day. Two stars, it's twilight. Three stars, it's nighttime. Rabbi Yossi said, this is neither referring to large stars that are visible even during the day, nor to smaller stars that are visible only late at night. Rather, it's referring to medium-sized stars. Amar Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Zvida. Rabbi Yossi, the son of Rabbi Zvida, said, One who performs a prohibited labor during two twilights, one between Friday and Shabbos, and one between Shabbos and the conclusion of Shabbos on Saturday night, he's liable to bring a sin offering for performing this malacha, this prohibited labor on Shabbos, any way you slice it, any way you look at it. So whether we say that twilight is day or night, certainly one of those labors was performed on Shabbos. You can't have it both ways in that particular example. Rava says to his servant, you who are not an expert in the measure of the sages, when the sun is at the top of the palm trees, light the Shabbos lights. So the servant asks Rava, so what should we do on a cloudy day when you can't see the sun? Rav says to him, in the city, watch the roosters, because as evening approaches, they sit on their beams. In a field, watch the ravens, because they come back to their nests when it's close to nighttime, when nighttime comes. Alternatively, you can watch the plants that turn westward in the evening. When they begin to turn westward, we know that evening is approaching. Tana Rabbanan, sages taught in Ebrisa. They sound six shofar blasts on Erev Shabbos to announce the Shabbos is approaching. So now we're going to talk about in the Gemara what each of these shofar blasts means, what it signifies. The first shofar blast is in order to stop people from doing work in the field. The second one is to stop those who are working in the city and to inform the business owners that it's time to close their stores. The third shofar blast is to inform them to light the Shabbos candles. This is the statement of Rabbi Nassim. Rabbi Hudanasi says, that the third blast is to inform those who put tefillin on during the day to take off their tefillin, because we don't wear tefillin on Shabbos. And he pauses after the third blast for the length of time that it takes to fry a small fish or to stick bread to the sides of the oven. 
one who forgets to do so and has to use those foods for Shabbos can actually use them then. Then he says he makes the tekiah sound, and then he says sounds trua, and then he sounds another tekiah and he accepts Shabbos. So this is how Shabbos begins, according to Rabbi Hudanasi. Rabban Shimon ben Gamliel said, "What do we do with the Babylonian Jews? So they stray from this custom. The Babylonian Jews had a different custom. They sounded a tekiah and then a trua." And then they accept Shabbos during that trua. I mean, when they hear the blast of the trua, that's when they accept Shabbos upon themselves. The Gemara asks, but do the Babylonians actually do this? Do they sound only a tekiah and a trua and nothing else? So if so, there's only five, but there's only five blasts and not six, as we learned just a minute ago in the Brisa. So rather, the correction here should be that they sound a tekiah and they say again, and then they, I'm sorry, then they again sound a tekiah, and then they sound a trua, and then after that, they accept Shabbos during the trua, during that last trua. And they do so because they continue the custom of their fathers that was handed down to them. So Rav Yehuda taught Rav Yitzchak, his son, he taught him the following thing. The second blast that is sounded before Shabbos is to inform people to light the Shabbos lights. The Gemara says, so whose opinion is this? So we know, the Gemara says, that it's not in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Nasan, nor is it in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda Nasi. So rather, certainly, he told them that the third blast is in order to inform the people to light the Shabbos lights, and in accordance with whose opinion is this? So the Gemara answers that it is, in fact, in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Nasan. On a similar note, the school of Rabbi Yishmael taught uh, in greater detail. They said, six blasts of the shofar are sounded on Erev Shabbos. When a person begins sounding the first tekiah, the people that are standing and working in the fields, they stop from hoeing and from plowing and from performing all the labors in the fields. And those workers who work close to the city are not permitted to enter the city until those who work farther away come. And the reason is so that they can all enter together. Otherwise, people would suspect that the workers who came later worked after the blast, and that would be a whole other situation. And still, at this time, the stores in the city are they're still open, and the shutters of the stores, where the shopkeepers would arrange their shutters, their merchandise in front of the stores, like we see today, those, those things remain in place. When he begins sounding the second blast, so the shutters are taken off from where they were placed, and the stores were locked down. And in the homes, however, hot water was still cooking on the stove in the pots, Remained, they were the pots were still on the, in place on the stove. When he began sounding the third blast, so the one that was charged with removing food from the stove took it off, and the one that was in, in charge of insulating hot water for Shabbos so that it wouldn't cool off, he insulates it, and the one that was charged with lighting the Shabbos lights would light them. And the person sounding the shofar would then pause for the amount of time that it takes to fry a small fish or to stick bread to the sides of the oven, and then he sounds a tekiah, and then a trua, and then a tekiah, and accepts Shabbos. Amar Rabbi Barchanina. Rabbi Yossi Barchanina said, I heard that a person who was pressed for time and comes to light Shabbos candles after these six blasts, he's able to do this without worrying about anything, because even the moment of the sixth blast, it's still not Shabbos yet. And he brings a proof, and the proof is that the Chachamim, the sages, provided that the, um, I guess, the, uh, the sexton of the shul, he would give him an opportunity, a period of time, to take his shofar. So he's make this person who is the, 
the person who's in, who works for the shul, so to speak, he, he's the one blowing the shofar. They would give him a certain period of time to take his shofar and take it to his house. So clearly, during that period of time, it's not Shabbos yet, because otherwise he wouldn't be able to carry his shofar. He wouldn't be able to touch it. It's muksa. So he says to him, if so, then you've rendered your statement subject to circumstances. And it would not apply uniformly to everybody. Shabbos would start at a different time in each place based on the distance between the site where the shofar sounded and the home of this person who works for the shul. So rather, Shabbos began immediately after the final blast with no pause. However, the Gemara says, Shabbos uh, uh, did begin after the final blast with no pause, but the sexton of the shul had a concealed place on the top of his roof where he would sound the shofar. So he would go up there, he would he would sound the shofar there, and then he would put the shofar in there because the consensus is that a person cannot move the shofar or any other type of trumpet on Shabbos. So he would have this little place that he would go, this nook on his roof that he would go, and that's where he would put the shofar. So the Gemara asked a question on this last halacha. Wasn't it taught in a price that the shofar can be moved on Shabbos, but the trumpets, the chatzot they can't be moved? Rabbi Yossi said this is not difficult. As a person could say that here, when we're talking about moving the shofar and that being permitted, it's referring to the shofar that belongs to a person. Because it has a use, even on Shabbos it can be moved. So therefore, when you're moving a shofar is prohibited, it's referring to a shofar that belongs to a community. Because that communal shofar has no use on Shabbos. And therefore, you, it's, it's considered muksa. Abaye says to him, so in the case of an individual, for what permitted action is a shofar fit to be used on Shabbos? It's fit uh, for use since it's suitable to give water with it. The person can use his own shofar to give water with it to a child. Because the mouth of a shofar is bent, as you know, a person can pour a little water at a time. So if a shofar belongs to a community, if that's the case, the, the communal shofar should also be suitable to feed water to a poor infant. Who, who the community supports. So furthermore, the halakha was taught in Brisa, just as a person can move the shofar, so too can move the chatzosros, the trumpets. That's contrary to what was taught previously, that there's a difference between moving the shofar and moving the trumpet. So in accordance with whose opinion is this Brisa? So also the Gemara says this is not difficult because we can explain it that these three brises that we just talked about correspond to three different opinions with regard to these halachas. This brisa, which permits moving the shofar but not the trumpet, this is in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Yehudu, who says that the laws of muksa apply to these items on Shabbos, and one cannot move a utensil whose only function is, pro- is prohibited. So if that utensil has only one purpose, and that purpose is prohibited on Shabbos, you can't move it. On the other hand, a person is permitted to move a shofar, which is able to be used to feed a child. And that brisa, which permits moving both a shofar and a trumpet, trumpet, this is in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Shimon. Because Rabbi Shimon holds that the halacha of muksa doesn't apply to a utensil of this kind on Shabbos. However, the third brisa, this other one, which the one that prohibits moving both the shofar and the trumpet, this is in accordance with the opinion of Rabbi Nehemiah, who holds that a person cannot use a utensil, cannot um, uh, use it, if that utensil's primary function is prohibited on Shabbos, even if you use it for a permissible purpose. Bezrest Hashem, we're going to see on the next daf 
the difficulty about moving uh, something that's neither a shofar nor a trumpet. Bezrat Hashem.